This is Get to Know an Average Joe. You may be Mexican in a 99% Mexican environment in high school, but you need to think like an American. You need to get an education. You need to pursue an education to become something better. And in my community, something better always meant, what are Caucasians doing? Here we are in the office of Diego Zaragoza, and we're going to talk about some of the things that you've chosen to study and some of the choices that you've made in your life. But I want to start with um, such a ticklish kind of name, Zaragoza. Where does that come from? Um, as much as I know, or as far as I know, uh, it's it's derives from Spain. There's a, an actual town in Spain even named Zaragoza. But in doing research, I found that it derives from the Roman times, Caesar Augustus. And it just kind of morphed into Zaragoza. And, and I guess it was, I mean, just given how the Roman Empire expanded into into the, the Iberian Peninsula, um, it, it, it found a home there. Um, and then obviously with, you know, with the influx of uh, colonialism into, into the, the Americas, it just filtered in and became a regular name, Zaragoza. And it's pretty common in Mexico. There's somebody in Mexico who sells cars because there's a lot of... <laughs> there is, there's a lot of Zaragozas everywhere. Um, even in history, important characters such as Ignacio Zaragoza. Um, who did what? I don't remember, which is kind of embarrassing. I don't remember. I could find it out quickly because I have Google fingers, but uh, it's not. <laughs> what is not Google? Sure. What are Google fingers? Well, information is at the tip of our of our fingers at any time and moment, so yeah. you don't have to memorize things anymore. Fair enough, but I think it's funny how you describe that as a physical attribute, your Google fingers. Well, I've been accused of just spending a lot of time on, the, on, on a screen, even by my partner just... He's constantly on his phone. He doesn't give me personal time. And it's always probably using Google Fingers, just trying to learn new things, find information, stay current. Do you agree with him that it's too much of a problem being too much screen time? I do. I so do. what do you do about it? It's it's hard to, to put it down sometimes because I get so intrigued by things that I curiously find that I'm not actually looking for. It has to be some willpower just to put it down and just escape for a bit and just go back to life. Real life, I would say. Mm-hmm. So yeah, IRL, live IRL. <laughs> it is an issue, and I have to recognize it. It's one of those like alcoholism, but I don't know how to call it. Yeah. Technologyism, yeah. devicism, something like that. But let's talk about your curiosity, because you are a vice principal here at the American School Foundation in Mexico. Is that right? That's correct. Why did you choose that career? How did that happen? I would go back to why I chose education. I began as a kindergarten and first grade teacher in, in, the, in the Coachella Valley Unified School District in California. And it was a, a career chosen by, by mistake. I would say I, I, I finished college and needed so, something to just make money while I defined my, my life. And I started substitute teaching and, and they put me in a position where um, they naturally saw the natural connections between kids and I and working in the community I worked at in close to home in the Coachella Valley. Uh, I worked with kids that were just like me, uh, farm workers, immigrants, legal or illegal, uh, doesn't make a difference. Uh, these kids needed somebody to identify with and I became a role model to them and they became a family to me. So going into education through there just 
helped me find a passion. I found that passion of working with kids. And later in life, just working in, in different positions, I stumbled into a leadership position where I wanted to grow. I wanted to make a bigger impact. And right now, I currently work with curriculum development at my school. And it's basically just building quality curriculum for, for kids uh, in, in the primary. And that's where I, I guess I found that passion. So two big steps, two big choices that you made, but you describe it as pretty passive choices. You accidentally found education and then you stumbled into leadership. When does Diego make a choice on purpose? Um, I've, been, I've been actually thinking about that because my passion is not really what I do. My passion is, uh, is, is with aviation, just the whole idea of you know, defying gravity. I'm a, I'm a gymnast as well. So there's, this, there's been this constant fascination with lift, with flying, with just movement in the air. That's a passion of mine, and I, that would be the actual purposeful decision I could make one day, but I just haven't, haven't made that decision. <laughs> Let's talk about being a gymnast. Uh, how did you get started in that? And what was that like pursuing gymnastics, but then having another career? Gymnastics came about in high school. Um, I, I had the choice, and this, this was a fabulous part of my, of my high school, Coachella Valley High School, that I could actually choose what type of physical activity I could do to fulfill my, my requirements. And they had a gymnastics program. And I said, well, that looks interesting. It, it's, it's pretty intense. It's got different apparatus. I mean, let's try it out. And I, I fell in love with it. I, I, I did gymnastics for three years in, in high school. And it, I liked it because it actually challenged me. It challenged my uh, ability, my physical abilities. And it just gave me a path, you know, to reach certain goals. And I think that's what I needed. I needed very clear, concrete goals to reach. And, and gymnastics gave me that opportunity. And then I left it for years and years and years. And until three years ago, 2013, I took on that path again. And I found a gym that would accept old men like me <laughs> uh, to, to pursue that sport again. And I really like just the, the, the challenge it gives me. It's really intense. Let's go back, and old is relative, of course. I don't think that you've seen many more than 30 years, have you? Or if? 36. Okay, so 36. How difficult is that physically? I mean, gymnastics is is really a sport for young people, so how is it coming back to it in your 30s? It is challenging, especially the flexibility piece and, and just the physical abilities that I may or may not have. I, I, I see my colleagues... Uh, train that are 16 15 years old and they they can instantly just go from level to level and old geezer over here is just trying and and trying to keep keep a, a steady pace obviously i can't i can't compete with them necessarily but at my own pace i'm i i consider myself pretty good pretty i've already competed i represented mexico city in the cancun national championship two years ago uh, i've done other little competitions here and there um, so it's a good it, it's it's good proof for myself that I can still if I put my mind to it I can still reach some of those goals at my own pace which is acceptable. Do you have moments of defying gravity? Yes, I do. Which um, within that moment comes a huge bang on my on my shin or my ankle or just, you know just fear sometimes. But it is 
an indescribable feeling when you just let go of the bar, do some sort of flip or tumble. It just makes you feel light and stress-free and just simply amazing. Let's talk about your identity. I guess being a gymnast is a is a pretty integral part of your identity, but you also are a mix of, I mean, here you are in Mexico City, you are Mexican, but really a lot of you is American because of where you grew up. Tell me about that. I would say heritage plays a big role in who I am, and that uh, stems from family, just family values. Um, but further than that is is just conviction. Uh, I can talk about conviction later, but um, in terms of identity, there's always a struggle of mine living in Mexico City, and I have the same struggle living in the States uh, when, I, when I do live there. Um, I consider myself American in thinking, organizing time, or German in time management, let's put it that way. <laughs> but are, are there German elements as well in your family? No, just my head. My head's pretty <laughs> crazy with, with time, and that's why we, we call it German Uh, that German identity. Um, But then living in Mexico, there's a lot of things or just mannerisms or ways that people live here that I don't understand because I can't um, cognitively understand them. I can feel them culturally, but having an an American-trained mentality becomes very conflictive. If you give an example, like for instance, we were having a conversation once about starting a meeting and describe a meeting that you begin as an American versus how you begin a meeting as a Mexican. Well, this is something that my teachers probably hate about me, but I do start a meeting on time. That means if, if I'm leading the meeting, if I'm facilitating, I start speaking at 9 o'clock. And the cultural difference in a meeting here is people come in at 9 o'clock with their lunch or trying to sit down, chit-chat, and to me, that's not an effective use of time or productive, but I see the culture, and this is where I struggle, the cultural element of it, you start a meeting more relaxed, you know, bring the tension down, just build relationships, build community. I see that, but then the effectiveness of time is, is what I struggle with. I need to get this done. We as a team need to decide on things, and then I respect people's time, so I want to finish on time. And that's, that's the, the biggest challenge I have with with time management and just differentiating uh, culture versus. Do you have a preference about which culture you embrace or is it just mood dependent? It's environment dependent. If I'm at work, I'm very, very much task oriented and I can be a machine. And even in in an evaluation that that somebody did for me one time, it said, we'd like to see more of Diego's human side uh, and not be so robotic. Uh, so we want to, you know, just get to know him a little bit better, have him just wind down a little bit. But then when I when I go out with friends or have a more relaxed environment, then yes, I, it's all about chit-chat, just having a good time, getting to know other people. So it, it depends on the environment. If I'm in a conference, something like that, it's it's very task-oriented. And, and it's a love-hate relationship that I have in my own head. <laughs> and with all of this going on internally, you chose a certain line of studies at the University of California. And now you're working on a project that sounds incredibly interesting that relates quite closely to that kind of conflict. Can you describe that? It's now become a two-step project or a two-part project. I I do a lot of work for the International Baccalaureate and one of the challenges that I've I've put myself out to, to 
to accomplish is to give a workshop on intercultural understanding in in the learning environment, sort of um, start training kids on how to see culture, how to understand culture, and how to deal with culture, uh, a culture that might be different than your own. And that's been a, a very interesting challenge because I've always been curious about different cultures around the world, different societies. Because of, of where my travels have taken me, I've become more curious about how society functions or if it does function, you know, just understanding those those characteristics of it. So I have these guidelines to for this workshop, but I wanted to include a little bit more. So I've started reading about intercultural understanding even within the Latino cultures um, in Latin America, bringing in, for example, elements of, I mean, with globalism, of uh, Middle Eastern cultures, Asian cultures, um, and why they're so different. And, and I guess what I want to get to is to give people or teachers, in this case, strategies to, to build a community where kids can understand their individuality, but be empathetic and open-minded enough to tolerate, in a, in a positive way, obviously, other cultures and their differences. And that's something that's been moving me constantly um, through education is that intercultural understanding. And the second part of this now is um, I, I just met somebody the other day that wants me to help out with a heritage seminar where we support students in identifying their heritage. Students, let's say in my case, for example, immigrants into the United States who carry a strong heritage but then question it often. And then once you get educated, you forget about your heritage. You become an American. You, you, know, you don't want anything to do with your heritage necessarily. So the purpose of this now is to help people see that their heritage is part of who they are. And that instead of letting it go, by keeping it and understanding it, it enriches you as, as a human being. You become an ambassador of who you are rather than just a nationality. Or looking at those and identifying those beliefs and values and really honing in on understanding and living them and helping others see that is a way to move forward towards peace in a very conflictive you know, world nowadays. It, it must be deeply personal for you to explore that. It's extremely personal. That was one of the struggles I faced as an immigrant growing up in the United States. I moved to the United States when I was one. My parents were very young, obviously, and they made the choice to immigrate. And it was not my choice, but obviously I couldn't know the difference for, for better or for worse than... <laughs> Um, and to me, growing up in the States was normal. That was home. But I knew that I was Mexican. I was Latino. And my way of doing things and seeing, seeing things wasn't the same as, you know, when I went down the road to Palm Springs, Palm Desert, where everything else was Caucasian, was an, a, a more white American perspective. For me, finding those beliefs and values and understanding them was very, very difficult. Um, I didn't know what to look or what to aspire for. My childhood life was very much, you know, you're Mexican at home. You may be Mexican in a 99% Mexican environment in high school, but you need to think like an American. You need to get an education. You need to pursue an education to become something better. And in my community, something better always meant, what are Caucasians doing? You know, it wasn't... I'm going to become better to become better in what my parents do or what or the environment they move themselves in. So it was a very conflicting time uh, from elementary school through middle school and high school. 
And then it was when I got to college at UCLA that I, I realized that I was on my own. I, I needed to find that identity and I needed to really understand what I was going to do, what the purpose of me was, as opposed to what the purpose of me and my family was. And that brought forth a lot of different emotions and struggles. And and mixed in with this, the, your, your gay man, if I may say so, I mean, how did your sexuality come and your sexual identity come into this struggle and how did you deal with that? Well, I, I between finding out who I was American or Mexican, I also had to I mean, I knew who I was as a as a in the closet homosexual man, but I didn't know how to face that. I and and it was mainly I know how to face it on my own, but I don't know how to face it with my family. I didn't care about society. Society to me was just uh, another piece of the puzzle, but a piece that found its place uh, because I was pretty independent when I started working through my identity. But it was. And you were how old? What age? Uh, this was when I started thinking about coming out. It was around 16, and I came out at 17 to my parents. And that was a difficult moment, but I, I felt that I. Why, why would I hide things from the people that I love the most. I, I, I'm not hiding it to my friends. I'm not hiding it to uh, people at the university. So why do it with family? And I realized that it, it was just the fear of them not loving me for who I was. And then I had another conflictive moment. Why wouldn't they love me if I'm doing exactly what they want me to do? I'm getting an education. I'm trying to be successful. I'm not an addict of alcohol, drugs, I'm not in a game. Only the smartphones? <laughs> Only smartphones. <laughs> not then, not, not in that time. <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty much a very conflictive moment. What do I do with this? And there was always a stigma of they're going to throw you out of the house, you know, if you tell them. But I considered my parents good people. You know, I, I didn't think that was going to be an issue, so I decided to drive home, and that was the longest drive of my life. I remember every single moment of it, um, driving home to the Coachella Valley, two and a half hours, and then just having the guts to say it. And how did they react? It's a very delicate memory, and, and my mother, I think, took it more in, in a more difficult way because she said, what about my grandkids? I remember her saying that you're not, no me vas a dar nietos, meaning you're not going to give me grandkids. And I mean, in the middle of comforting, my dad told me, we, we love you for who you are. You don't have to worry about this. And I didn't expect that. I, I really didn't expect that. I, I wanted that to happen. I wanted them to say that, and it did. And it just proved to me that I'm, I'm surrounded by people that love me and and despite whether you're homosexual or not, they're, they're, they, have, they demonstrate unconditional love. Mm. And for my mother, it took a little bit longer um, for, for her to accept it, I think. Uh, my father, had, my father um, was curious about how it was, and I think he beat himself up a few times because he said, he would say, well, no wonder you didn't like to fix the car and change the oil. I'm like, well, what, well, what, does, that have, what does that have to do? I can still do it. It doesn't prove anything. <laughs> so I think my dad and I had more uh, comical conversations about it, whereas my mother uh, had, had more difficulties with it. Wow. 
Let's talk about Orlando. Since we're talking about this, we're talking about the combination of homosexuality and the Latin community and what happened recently in Orlando with that shooting. How do you react to that? My reaction was more, this is terrifying. I didn't associate it much with the gay community in, in general. I think we as a society and a global society need to realize that this hate that is happening isn't just targeted to the gay community. Sandy Hook, right. these are children. Yes. San Bernardino, yes. these are just... I think there have been 15 mass school mass shootings, many of them involving schools. And, and the, the reason I say these three is because they, they hit home. Um, I work in a school. I'm gay. Right. And San Bernardino is an hour and a half from where my parents live. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that struck home because my dad said, why don't you stop traveling? This can happen wherever you go. And I said, Dad, it just happened an hour and a half from where you live, Mm -hmm. in a regular part of town. And those three have made an impact, but mainly because what they're trying to do and the whole definition of terrorism is to instill fear in people and to take people's freedoms away. I mean, we look at Paris. My sister's in Paris as we speak right now. And the last thing I wanted to tell my sister before she took off to Paris on Sunday was, if you find yourself in a situation, what's the best thing you can do? Mm-hmm. Fall on your fall, fall on the ground and play dead, right. you know, or run. But that just you can't really think when that's happening, and and it hasn't happened to us. But it's just terrifying, and it angers me that freedom is being pulled away from from us. And then you have this project where you're building intercultural understanding. So do you think about that as being directly related, as what you're up to? You may be helping prevent terrorism. I hope. I hope that at, my, my objective is to at least impact one life. You know, that's the action I want to take. You know, that, that we, we all need to value who we are, what we bring to the table, and work as a team. I think the days of working independently are far gone. And it's all about working together, coming to decisions together, because that's how a society should work. Well, from defying gravity to terrorism and preventing terrorism, Diego, thank you very much for being on Get to Know an Average Joe. It was my pleasure. Diego wraps up our trio of educators. Hope you enjoyed his story as much as I did. Dwight Witherspoon shares his story next, and we're going to devote the entire podcast to talking about his daughter, Massey. I can tell you, if you go into a pediatric cancer ward and you come out and tell me that that happens for a reason, then we disagree because there's no way that a four-year-old or a two-year-old or a 12-year-old gets leukemia and it serves any purpose, serves no purpose. Tune in to another Get to Know an Average Joe soon and subscribe on iTunes or on Podbean. Thank you for listening. And now, if you'll excuse me.